Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Oh man, all right, that kind of day. So, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad that you are with us today. Um, We are in the book of Acts, chapter 17, starting in verse uh, 16. Next week, Brad will be back. He's visiting his family in California uh, this weekend. But uh, next week, we'll start our series on the book of James, the letter of James. And uh, this week, though, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be in the book of Acts. I love the title. Great graphic. Brandon Barnes, everybody. What an awesome graphic. Uh, the title of this morning's sermon is fun. Uh, how, to engage, how to evangelize pagans. I toyed around with how to evangelize your pagan, how to evangelize a pagan. Uh, you'll see this morning as we go why I'm entitling it that. Um, but let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. Father, we pray, uh, well, we praise you, first of all. Uh, that you have called us together, that you've drawn us out of the kingdom of darkness, and that you have brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, the kingdom of light, uh, where we are invited into your home, where we are treated not only as uh, tolerated guests, but as your children, as your sons and daughters. Uh, Because of what Jesus has done, we thank you then that we can hear from you, that we can come gather around at your feet and we can hear from your word. I I pray that this morning as we read your uh, word together, as we study this book of Acts, that you would illuminate our eyes and our our minds that we might understand and that we might know you better, that we might become more like you. Uh, Would you cause us to grow this morning? Would you nourish us with your word? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 17, this whole book, I don't know when the last time was that you read Acts. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book. Um, it picks up from the Gospel of Luke, which is the Gospel that Luke wrote. He also wrote the book of Acts, so it's sort of a sequel. And it carries on from the crucifixion and the resurrection into the early days of the church, trying to trace out the, the journey, the path that the gospel took on its spread from Jerusalem, this small Jewish sect all the way out into the, the known world, the, the Roman Empire. Uh, and so in the book of Acts, we see this progression take place. And here in Acts chapter 17, we see this exemplary speech, this uh, TED talk, if you will, that Paul gives to a group of philosophers in the Greek city of Athens. Um, and, and so it comes in the, towards the middle of the book, as this way of showing us not only that the gospel has spread to people groups that you would never have imagined would uh, trust in Christ and want to even hear about the gospel, uh, but it doesn't just show us that. It shows us how Paul explains the gospel to him. What are the things that he emphasizes? What are the, the points that he deems necessary and therefore that we should probably consider as we uh, bring the gospel to bear on the lives of people around us, as we bring the gospel to those who have not heard um, so thus far, we've seen plenty of speeches to Jews, to Greeks, and, and here is probably the, the most exemplary speech that we see in the book of Acts for, uh, for, for Gentiles, for Greeks. Um, let me read the text. I'm going to piecemeal it a little bit, so we'll start out in verse 16, and I'll read through verse 21, and we'll pause there, and then we'll pick back up. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, his friends at Athens, he's just kind of stranded in the city, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was full of idols, 
full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, uh, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So right away, Paul is he's in Athens. He's waiting for, I think it's uh, Silas and Timothy to come visit him. And, uh, and in the meantime, what does Paul do? He, he goes out into the city. He visits the synagogues. He visits the marketplace. And as he walks through the city of Athens, he is struck. And, and the, the Bible tells us that his spirit was provoked by the rampant idolatry that he finds in the middle of this great city. He can't believe it, which is really saying something for the Apostle Paul. In chapter 14 of Acts, Paul goes to a city, and upon healing a man of, uh, I think he's maybe paralyzed, he heals this guy. And the people there are so amazed at this that they decide that this must be the, the very presence of uh, well, Paul and Barnabas are the presence of these two Roman gods or Greek gods. They, they think that this must be Zeus and Hermes here among them. And so they start to worship. They start to bow down, offer gifts to them. Uh, it's, a, it's quite a scene. And Paul and Barnabas, I mean, absolutely lose their minds. They cannot, once they realize what's going on, they, they, they tell the people, you got to stop this. Paul has seen idolatry. He has seen pagan worship. He has been around places where people have no clue what up and down are. He has no idea. They have no idea. So when we get to chapter 17, and Paul is in Athens, and the word tells us that he was provoked in his spirit by the idolatry here, we know that something really radically serious is going on. Uh, this is something unlike anything that, that Paul has seen up until this point. Uh, he, he does what, what Paul does, though. And he preaches the gospel. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them in the synagogue and in the marketplace about the resurrection and the people are curious. There are these two uh, philosophic uh, groups, two philosophies represented in the middle of the city, and they hear what he has to say, and they're curious about what this means, and would he tell them more? They're interested. It's not maybe a serious interest, but, but it is a serious curiosity, if nothing else. They're Entertain us. Tell us more about what this is that you, that you have to say. Uh, the irony of all this, of course, though, is, is what they call Paul and then how Luke assesses these very philosophers himself. They, they, they talk about Paul kind of derisively at first. They say, what does this babbler have to say? They call him a babbler, which for us makes enough sense. We, we get that that's not the most uh, winsome way to describe a person. But uh, in, in this period of time, to call somebody a babbler, the, the word there is really indicating something even more than that. Uh, and, and these days, you would, if you were done with your trash, the scraps of your food, whatever, you, you wouldn't put it in a bag and put it in a can and put it at the street and somebody would take it away or you take it to a dump. That's not how it worked. You would throw your things out into the street. They would hit the gutter maybe and then they'd be washed away, something like that. And it was very common that you would find birds, creatures of different kinds, coming to these scraps, picking them up, gnawing, nibbling on them, spitting them out, going on to the next thing. Uh, and, and finding their sustenance that way. When they call 
Paul a babbler. They're, they're, in, they're indicating, they think of Paul in the same way. Now, Paul is just some guy picking up little pieces of scraps of ideas and truths and whatever, and they're just interested. Let's see what, what bone he's gnawing at here. What, what does he have to say to us? Um, the irony, though, is the way that Luke concludes this little section in verse 21. He says about these very people, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You can hear the sarcasm in Luke's voice. These people, they call Paul a babbler. They, their whole living is, is, is based on this, though. This is all they do is they share ideas, they talk about things, they, they maybe feel smart or sophisticated, what have you. But all that they do is, is pass along one little nugget to the next. They pick up one scrap, and when they're done with it, they pick up another new shiny scrap, and when they're done with that, they'll go to another thing. They love talking about new things, anything different, anything unseen or unheard of before. Uh, one commentator I read, he, he says... Uh, it's, it's not unlike um, like somebody walking down the street picking up a cigarette butt off the ground and deciding that this is, this is what I'm going to use. Uh, the, these people, they are, they're desperate for anything to talk about, and they'll chew on just about whatever comes to mind. These different groups, though, that are represented here, one are the, the Epicureans, the other are the Stoics. Uh, what, what do they believe? Who are they? Epicureans would have been, uh, well, all, both of these groups are really not actually uncommon today. Um, Epicureans would have been people who uh, are much more materialistic about the world. Their, their view of the world is that everything is just the, the stuff that it's made of. There's really not much more to it. Maybe there are some gods or goddesses, but if there are, they're incredibly far away. They really don't have any bearing on the here and now. They sought pleasure, but not in a hedonistic sort of way, just a general, hey, you want to pursue a good life in moderation, but pursue what's good and makes you feel good and is right and, and so forth. The Stoics, on the other hand, were, were more pantheistic. They believed in divinity, but they saw it in everything. Right? Everything is united by this sense of, of divinity. Their main emphasis, though, was reason. With a capital R, reason is what guides the universe. Reason is what dictates how we should act and live. Reason is worth pursuing above all else. In the end, they wanted to be self-sufficient. They saw that as the highest virtue. Self-sufficiency, doing your duty, uh, fulfilling your obligations no matter what it costs you. Stoics and the Epicureans represent a, a pretty broad swath of the human population. Then. and I, I think we, we see echoes of, of their philosophy today. The most striking thing about these groups, though, is their assessment, not of the world or what the, what's most valuable to them, but, but it's the way they hear Paul speak of Jesus and the resurrection. The way they hear Paul speak of Jesus and the resurrection, they, they describe this in verse 18. They say that uh, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Foreign divinities. They have no idea what these things are that Paul's talking about, but their, their best guess, their, their, their assumption, is that, that Paul's just bringing up something that, uh, you know, it's just foreign, it's new, it's strange, it's a curiosity, it's just another option out there, but it's something that might be worth hearing about, I don't know, maybe we can kind of add this to our arsenal. That Jesus and the resurrection would just be considered some extra 
understanding, some extra divinity, some extra thing to, to chew on and spit out should strike you as, as, uh, well, as unbelievable, if you're a believer. Um, but this is, this is how these people thought of what Paul was saying to them. And you can almost hear the Epicureans saying, we don't even know if there really are any gods, but you're telling us that God has, is not only real, but that he has become man. He has taken on flesh and dwelled among us. That, that's what you're bringing to the table, Paul? I got to hear more about this. You got to be kidding me, right? You can almost hear the Stoics likewise saying, a God with authority over death itself, the resurrection? Mm-mm. No, no, no. That's unbelievable. That's ridiculous. Death is just a part of life. I got to hear more about what you have to say. This will be fun. This is the reception that, that Paul is, is met with. If you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, you'll be given an idea of uh, what it means when, when it says that Paul uh, preaches Jesus and the resurrection. He, he, he writes to the Thessalonian church, having seen them come to faith, having seen their church established. He writes to them in verse 9 of chapter 1 how some report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you, the Thessalonians, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's almost like Paul was a really consistent person when he went place to place. You can hear him saying these very things and preaching along these lines to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, and you see their reaction. But Paul focuses, he zeroes in on what, what he considers and what I think we should consider the most essential truths of the Christian faith, who Jesus is and, and the importance, the, the significance of the resurrection. Now, Paul's going to circle back around to both of those things as he speaks to the Athenians at the, Areop, at the Areopagus. Um, but first, I, I want to bring up one point. This is, this is our first point here. And it, it's this, the world is always, always clamoring for something new. The world is always clamoring, fighting, striving, seeking after, chasing after, picking up, spitting out, moving on to the next thing, something new or shocking uh, or, 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 or stimulating. It's just the nature of the human race. I think it's the nature of people. It was true then in Acts 17, and, it, and it's still true today. We're, we're always eager to accumulate new ideas, to entrench ourselves in old ideas, maybe, maybe just in, in new ways, uh, eager to find like-minded groups, people who will support us in what we're thinking and the, the things that we're discovering and learning. And I think with the rise of the internet, you can see how easy, I mean, un incredibly easy it is for people to go out and, and find anything to just tickle their ears, suit their fancy, uh, strike them uh, at their heart, how they perceive the world to be. It's, 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 it's remarkable, actually, how incredibly fast ideas travel now. 
And that only further fuels what's happening here in Acts 17 today. It's, it still goes on, maybe even faster than we realize. Ideas or, or rumors, what have you, spread at the speed of the internet. It's easy to, to find something new and, and to, to have the appearance of wisdom, uh, to have the appearance of objectivity because so much information can be at your fingertips, to have the appearance of illumination. And these are the things that, that this world loves and cherishes, isn't it? We, even, even, even we ourselves are maybe tempted along the same lines to have secret, hidden wisdom or knowledge things that no one else knows, or to be at the, the, the cutting edge of whatever is new and exciting and fresh. This is, the, this is the world that we live in. It's the world that Paul lived in. I guess I, I want to encourage you, especially if you're a believer, to, to learn to train your eyes, to train your mind, and to be able to spot the idols where they are. It, it, it may seem innocent, simple, uh, benign, to just surf the web and, and, and read Wikipedia or blogs or whatever and, and to find all sorts of information. It may seem like just sort of a, a harmless use of time, maybe even a waste of time, but kind of fun. But I, I, I think it bears saying here, uh, there, are, there are some pretty wicked, wicked corners of the internet. Some of you know that maybe too well. Uh, there are places where you can find sexual perversion that, that, that you just would not believe. And, and there are hubs where people can gather around this particular idol, this particular ideology. I, I think probably, especially in, in the South and, and in, even in uh, churches like ours, there's the potential that people can find themselves in pockets of the Internet supporting uh, racist ideology without even really considering what it is that they're wading into before it starts to take a root in their own heart and before it starts to transform how they see the gospel. It, it, it is so easy for us to peddle in ideas, in philosophies, theology, good and bad. And we need to be wary, we need to be careful this world does not care about that, though, right? The, the, the people of this world will, will seek after anything that, that tickles their fancy. The bottom line for Christians, however, is that we proclaim something that is radically different. Uh, the gospel that we proclaim is, is incredibly transcendent. See, this world chases after fleeting ideas and concepts and gods and goddesses, idols of our day. And all these things have sort of a shelf life, and they cycle back around, and people think something is new when it's been maybe as old as the world itself. Uh, but, but Christians, what we proclaim, what we believe, is something that is incredibly, I mean, it is timeless. It expands beyond the, the fleeting uh, opinions and thoughts of this world. The gospel speaks to all people everywhere for all of time who have ever existed. The gospel transcends, it, it triumphs over all the ideologies of this world. Uh, the power of the cross, the truth of who Jesus is, the, the hope of the resurrection, these things, these truths, this person, uh, it, 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 it outweighs everything combined. 
And that's what we as believers hold to. That's what we proclaim. And so it's important for us then as Christians to discern and to be discerning, rather, as we engage with unbelievers. As we engage with the the pagans around us today, we need to exercise discernment. It's tempting, for example, to assume that that a well-spoken Christian can make the gospel more appealing or attractive. Because if we're, if we're trading in ideas and ideologies, then maybe the best presented ones are the ones that will, will get all the, 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 the notice. I mean, but the gospel's not a TED Talk, you understand? Sometimes, you ever watch some of these videos? Man, they drive me crazy. I can't stand them. You, you, you're scrolling through Facebook or something, and up pops this TED Talk, or you're just on YouTube, and here it is, this TED Talk. And some person will just describe to you something so blatantly obvious and clear and like time-tested, you know, but they say it with such incredible skill and dexterity and, and the use of words and, and, uh, and logic that you're just sucked in, but they're just telling you something that everyone already knows, you know. I, I, I promise you there has got to be a TED Talk on soup the food of cold weather, you know, and somebody out there is telling you, hey, you know what, don't take my word for it, but uh, more people eat soup when it's cold, right? Somebody's doing that. And he lives in New York. Somebody's doing that. But the gospel is not, it's not just some trendy idea. And it's not going to be more appealing because of the way you say it or because of the, the, the wisdom that you possess in and of yourself to make it seem attractive and pleasant and awesome. We present something more than that. We can be tempted as well to think that just reason alone can prove Jesus is who he says he is or that the resurrection is true. But at some point, reason kind of breaks down because guess what? the God of the universe, he's just not beholden to the way we think. The resurrection defies all logic. It doesn't make sense except that it violates the rules, and of course God can do that. But reason alone isn't going to win people to the, to the gospel. Well, the key for us, I think, if we're going to engage the lost around us, is that we would show them how the gospel transcends, transcends the fleeting ideas of this world. We need to show them how the gospel is, is more, how it's greater. Let's get back to Acts chapter 17, uh, picking up in verse 22. So Paul is brought before the Areopagus, this group of philosophers. They want to hear what he has to say, and they, they bring him, whether he really wants to or not. Uh, but he, he comes along, and Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, there's... He may be putting his tongue in his cheek there. As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to you or gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, there it is again, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul gives this speech, and we're to understand, even as we read this, this is probably not the full text of Paul's speech. Luke is giving us a synopsis, an idea of everything that Paul said. Uh, and so the, I, I doubt that Paul just said, oh, and the resurrection. I, he probably went into a little more depth about what that is and means, right? Uh, nevertheless, here we're given this, this great example, this idea of how to evangelize uh, the, the, the pagans around us, right? Um, now, let's talk about this idea that Paul brings up right there at the beginning. He says that they're very religious. That might be something akin to today, saying, I can see that you're very spiritual, you're mindful of things. You realize that maybe this, this life, is there's more to it than what we necessarily see. It's easy for us, I think, though, to scoff at idolatry, the way Paul presents it. I mean, he was provoked by their idolatry. He sees these idols around the city. He even notices one that's just a pedestal, I guess, and there's an inscription, and it says, to, to the unknown God. You know, it's as if, it's as if the Athenians are just, just kind of keeping it close to the vest, you know, holding on, saying, well, you know what? We got a lot of deities out here, but there's a chance, however small, that maybe we've missed one. And we don't want to offend the God of whatever that God is responsible for, so we'll put a placeholder there for him or her, and we'll just see what happens. And that way, we'll maybe find ourselves in, in their good graces and, uh, and, and get away easy. We're, we're, we, we scoff at that, don't we? We look at that and we think, oh my gosh, idols, what? Statues of wood and stone? You bow down to these things and expect them to, to do whatever for you, to give you whatever your heart desires. The reality, though, is we're, we're really not that much different. In fact, I think it's not so much that we've, uh, that we've lost the idols. It's, it's rather that just at this point in time, people found a good shorthand to just say, well, let's, put the, let's make that statue just responsible for all the things that we really want. It's just easier that way. It's a bookmark if you want to think about it that way. In other words, if you want a rock, you should just go to the quarry if that's what you want. But if, but if you want power, if you want, if you want a claim, if you want uh, wealth... Just go to that particular rock, and, and that's where you'll find it. We do the same things. The people around us do the same things, even for the Stoics at their time. Zeus, they realized, was probably not a reality, but, but instead he stood to them for just the power and authority of reason with a capital R. Even they knew this is kind of hokey, but it's helpful for us to be able to just think about what it is that we really want and concentrate on being able to, to get it through whatever means we can find. 
we've just dispensed with the middleman, right? We've just dispensed with the statue itself. And so Paul addresses these pagan philosophers. Um, and, and this is what he says, and, and I guess this is the, our, our next point, but let me just summarize it this way. If we're going to evangelize the, the pagans around us, like Paul here, uh, there, there are some things that we need to remember and proclaim. And I say remember and proclaim because I, I think it's important that we ourselves believe and understand these things to be true. Uh, that we ourselves uh, have confidence in what it is that we're actually saying. Uh, so we need to remember these things for ourselves and, and remember that they're true even as we proclaim them, and then we need to proclaim them. We, we must, first of all, proclaim and remember the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Paul, Paul does that right here. Um, what does God's sovereign authority look like? Let's flesh that out. What does it look like according to Paul here? And he gives us several uh, glimpses. First of all, the sovereignty of God, the sovereign authority of God means that, that he is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all people. He's the creator of everything in this universe. If you look at verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. That means everything. He rules over all things because he has made all things. He's made all people. He's made these Epicureans. He's made these Stoics. He's made the rocks that these statues are made out of. He's, he's creator of all. Not only is God creator of all, but he is independent of his creation. He doesn't depend on them for anything. We see that he doesn't live in temples, nor is he served by human hands in verse 25. Rather, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need people. He didn't create people out of some need for recognition or fellowship or communion. Rather, people are fully dependent on and need him. We rely on him for every breath we take. The Epicureans and the Stoics alike, as well as the believers, we, we depend on and owe our very existence and being to him. Not only that, but he is sovereign over the activities of all peoples. Uh, verse 26 says that he made from one man every nation. Even the Greeks. He has made us all. He has determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Where they would stay and what the ages and seasons and, and years and history would look like for each of these peoples. He, he is sovereign over all of those things. He's not just the creator of all that exists. He's the creator of of time itself and everything that happens within it. But not only that, um, God's sovereign authority means that he is, is the absolute authority for an absolute end, an absolute goal. And he says in verse 27 that they should seek God. This is his purpose. And all the things that he has superintended for these people, for the peoples of the earth, his purpose is that they might seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
That's the aim of history. That's the intended desire of all that God has done in creating all the various peoples of the world, placing them where he has, giving them the resources or lack thereof. All of it is by the Lord's design that that we all might seek him and find him somehow. He, He is, has absolute authority over all things. I mean, this is an incredible claim. It was an incredible claim then. I mean, you can imagine for people who didn't really even know if there were gods and goddesses, uh, for, to be told that there, there, there actually are. In fact, there's just one, and he's over all things, all people, any god or goddess that you can even come up with. He's sovereign over whatever sphere of the world they're supposed to be sovereign over in your mind. Uh, that's ridiculous to, to, to these people. Uh, the, the idea that, that there would be one God who is absolute and, and sovereign over all things is, is preposterous to a people who sees God in everything. Who sees God, if he exists, as really a part of creation, dependent on creation as opposed to separated from it. This is true then and it's true today. Uh, this, is, this is how people think. And when we bring the idea of an absolute God before them, they, they laugh and scoff. Tell me more about that. Because it's, it's utterly ridiculous. And yet it is absolutely crucial. Because I think apart from this understanding of who God is, uh, people will never see the, the importance, the significance of Jesus and the resurrection. They just won't get it. It won't make sense. Right? If, if there is no absolute divine being over all things, then why in the world do we care about what Jesus has done? Because there may be any other number of ways we can deal with whatever problems we might have. Frankly, it's a little hard to believe that I could even offend this one absolute divine being if he even cares about anything about me at all. I mean, you see, people have the hardest time with this, with this concept that your life is subject to an absolute authority, even in the minutiae, the mundane realities of, of day-to-day existence. I think it's something, not that people just refuse, but that people really don't want to be bothered with. Uh, people would rather suppress this idea than, than actually wrestle with the implications of it. It means, though, that all, all of the idols of this world, all your idols are obsolete. Uh, because there is only one who is able to provide for you all that you were made for. Uh, not only that, but it means that there is only one who can even determine what it is that you were made for. What is even worth your time and desire? There's only one. And that limits people. And people don't like that. People want to have the authority in their lives. Uh, some people will respond to that idea. They'll, they'll tell you, man, you can't, you can't appeal to authority. You can't appeal to, to God for proof of God. That's ridiculous. You can't appeal to God's word for truths about who God is. That's preposterous. Right? That, that's circular logic. But the reality is that every single person in the universe does this. This is how we all live. We all make an appeal to some final absolute arbiter of what is right and wrong. I mean, if you don't believe me, next time you talk to somebody who insists that, that reason and rationale is what governs all things and there is no God, we should just trust reason, ask them to prove this to you without using reason. It's impossible. You have to appeal to reason to argue for reason, which is circular, apparently, 
Or, or somebody who says, no, you need to go with what feels right, go with your gut, go with your emotion. If it feels right, then it is. Ask them to prove this to you without using their gut instinct. Right? We, we, we appeal to authority all the time. Why is it that when we appeal to the authority of the one absolute God of the Bible, we can't use his own words to do it? Where else are we supposed to go, for that matter, to prove the authority of God? If anyone else can prove to us the authority of God, wouldn't that make that thing or person God himself? No, God is independent of all things. He doesn't need your backup. He doesn't need your logic and reasoning. He is. You should listen to him. Right? Not only should we, should we remember and proclaim the absolute authority of God, but we should remember and proclaim the, the imminence the nearness of the same God. Um, what does God's nearness mean? What does his eminence look like? Uh, it's deeply personal. It's very personal. If you, if you look at verse 27 of Paul's sermon here, he says um, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You don't find ideas. You don't feel your way towards some sort of abstraction. Uh, you, you know a person. You need, in order to know something personally, that, that something needs to, to exist in a personal way. Um, the God that we read about in Scripture, the God that we, that we worship and seek, in verse 28, we find in him we live and move and have our very being. And not only that, but, but Paul even quotes these philosophers. He says, we are indeed his offspring, not in the sense that we're all children of God and everything's good, but in the sense that we all owe our very existence uh, to, to who he is in his essence. We exist because of who he is. And, and we are like him because of, of who he is. So we're, we're meant to, to know him personally. This nearness, this, this uh, imminence of God is, is deeply personal, but it's also impossible to duplicate in any other way. You can't manufacture this. You can't find this anywhere else. He says in verse 29, Paul does, that we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or the imagination of man. This can't be duplicated. It can't be... Uh, can't be uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Counterfeited? It can't be conjured up. Our God is truly knowable. Uh, and, and he is alone. He is unique in this. In verse 30, Paul says that uh, the times of ignorance God formerly overlooked. You know, the, the, the philosophers, the people of Athens, they even had a a, a place, a pedestal, a, a, an inscription for an unknown God. This is a God that will just kind of bide our time, but we, and maybe until one day we can possibly know him. No, Paul says, this God has overlooked times of ignorance in the past, but now he can be known. Now he, in fact, is knowable, and he is holding all people to account for this reality. If you turn to Romans chapter 1, Starting in verse 18, 
Paul, again, he, he writes then to this church in Rome. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You hear that? The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, the very definition of what unrighteousness even is, they suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know it. It's that they refuse to know it. It's that they refuse to acknowledge and remember this. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Can't you picture the Athenians? Can't you picture yourselves even before knowing Christ? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the state of the human race. This is the position we all find ourselves in apart from the Lord's intervention. And all of this, we get a picture of God that is very unique. We see our, that our God is uh, unique in this combination of two things. And if you were here Wednesday night at Midweek Fellowship, I'm sorry, not sorry, you're about to hear this again. Our God is personal and absolute. He is over all things and yet we can know him. And that, that sets him apart from all the deities and gods and goddesses and idols and philosophies of this world. It does. There is no one like him in this way. That he can be so above and over all things. That he depends on no one and transcends everything. And yet beckons us to know him personally. Not only does he does that, but in his sovereignty... He oversees the very process by which we can know him and be reconciled to him. There's some implications of this, though. If we can truly know the Lord of heaven and earth, then we have sinned against someone with all authority. We haven't just transgressed some sort of universal law that exists impersonally, but we have actually offended a person. In, in the sense of a divi- like an actual personal being. We have, we have defended the one who oversees all, and that is, our, that is the nature of our sin. I should clarify, when I, when I say person, I'm not referring to God as some sort of one person God. I realize the doctrine of the Trinity t- requires me to say that there are three persons in one God, God Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When I right now I'm saying person, I'm referring to just the personal nature of our God. Can I just clarify that? I just feel like I need to say that. When we sin against this personal God, we, we have not just sinned against an abstraction. We have sinned against the divine ruler of heaven and earth who would have us know him except that we have cut ourselves off from him by our, our unrighteousness and the suppression of the truth. And so thirdly, if we are to evangelize the pagans around us, we must remember and proclaim the need for repentance and the hope of redemption that we have in Christ. See, God's judgment is like God himself. It is, it is sovereign and it is imminent. It is absolute and it is near. It is, it is at hand, it is close. God's 
Judgment is sovereign. He has fixed a day. This is what Paul says in verse 31. He, he concludes his time with the Athenians by warning them that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Because our God is absolute, sovereign over all things, he alone has the authority to do this. And he, he in fact, will and, and, and is going to do this. He can... He has fixed a day for judgment. We talked about this last week um, or two weeks ago, wrapping up Malachi. But the judgment of the Lord is as sure as he is. It is as sweeping as he is because it is his. And, and so this judgment is fixed and, and it is also universal. This judgment will face, all, all the peoples of the earth will face it. Not only is God's judgment though sovereign and, and absolute, but it is also imminent. And near, he, he tells us that, uh, that this judgment will come by a man whom he has appointed. This man is already in waiting. He is, already, uh, he is actually already seated at the right hand uh, where he presides over all things. But, but where he presides as a, as a person. And of this, Paul says, he has given us assurance. We can, we can know that this will happen. Because he has raised Jesus from the dead. And so he ends his speech here really where he began. If what was so intriguing to the Athenians was this idea of Jesus and the resurrection, how can these things be? This is really strange, these foreign divinities you're talking about. Uh, Paul knows better than to, to cut bait. But instead, he's going to double down. He just needed to lay some different, some different foundational work to get there. And having done that now, establishing who our God is and what sets him apart from all the idols of the people, he then redirects our attention and the attention of the Athenians to Jesus, the person and work of Christ. In Jesus, in the person and work of Christ, the judgment of God is actually at hand. This is what Paul is saying. And we know this because at the cross, that is where God's wrath against sin was carried out. Where it spilled forth into the world. Jesus received judgment day on behalf of all those who would trust in him. And so when we see the resurrection, we're not just seeing some cool parlor trick that Jesus has accomplished. Maybe he was dead, maybe he wasn't. This is ridiculous. No, instead, we're seeing the very vindication of the truth that God has carried out his judgment and vindicated his son, and therefore any who are found to be in Jesus. And the Athenians need to know that. Because it means that God's judgment is real, but it also means that we have hope if we will turn and trust in Christ. And it is a call, therefore, to repent and turn from our sin, that we might not face God's wrath and judgment, but that Christ might have faced it for us at the cross. So Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, I think really well summarized this. Paul says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is satisfaction 
a reconciliation has taken place where our sins so offensive to this personal God that we are called to adhere to and obey are suddenly dealt with. The wrath of God is carried out not on us, but on Jesus instead. And the Lord, instead of being wrathful towards us, is in fact pleased with us because the righteousness of Christ is seen as our own. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You can even hear Paul saying, the times of ignorance God overlooked. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. You may have wondered, how can the Lord let sinners off the hook for so long? Well, finally, judgment has come in Christ so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. And that's what Paul is proclaiming to the Athenians, the hope that we have in Christ, who is God in the flesh. In Christ, we have the absolute authority over all of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth, who has come as close to us as we can possibly fathom. He entered into our world. He came down to where we are. He condescended to us and in his nearness saved us from the absolute judgment to come. And so then our hope is only in Christ and the resurrection. This is why Paul, everywhere he goes, looks to Christ and the resurrection. That's all he wants to tell people about because everything else is really just kind of window dressing for the real thing. And so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul explains this again. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. This is the gospel, according to Paul, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is to say Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Everywhere Paul goes, this is what he proclaims, this is what he heralds, this is what he tells people. In Christ, we can know the Lord of creation and find life rather than certain death. This is, this is what Paul proclaimed. This is what he taught. Now, there are some inevitable reactions to this. From mockery to piqued interest, maybe. We'd love to hear more of what you have to say. Some of these people tell him. Uh, but there are some who believe there are a handful, apparently, who follow Paul in, in their belief. Two are even named, one an Areopagite himself, a man who was accustomed to these sorts of debates and lectures and TED Talks. He, he heard something that he had not heard before that day. And the gospel changed him. The Lord quickened his heart. He gave him life, and he believed. Not only him, but, but this woman, Damaris, she walked away trusting in the gospel, a woman living in a town where idols are everywhere, even, even inscriptions for idols that people aren't fully aware of because they're so superstitious. She walked away convinced that there's really only one God, and his name is Jesus, and he's worthy of her entire loyalty and affection and love. 
And that's the inevitable reaction that you'll face too, right? I mean, in this world, you cannot presume that by sharing these things, even speaking along the lines as eloquently as Paul does here, that people will just be convinced and they'll walk away. They weren't convinced for Paul. Not all of them. Many of them mocked him continually. And the same things will happen to us as we proclaim Christ to others that we know, to the pagans around us. But we're called, rather than being guaranteeing some result, we are instead called to be faithful to tell others who our God is and what he has done in Jesus. And I think and I hope that you can do so confidently knowing that you worship the one God of all creation who has drawn near to us in Christ and whom you can actually know because of the truth of the gospel. So the questions I guess that I have for you as we conclude are these. Do, do we share Paul's reaction to the pervasive idolatry all around us? When Paul saw these things, his spirit was provoked, and the only thing he could think to do was to go to the marketplace, to go to the synagogue, and just tell others about Jesus and the resurrection. He was so uh, broken and incensed by the idolatry around him. Or do we maybe just kind of laugh and shrug it off? We, we just kind of treat the idolatry that we see as sort of harmless, and yet it like people are really... People are really wandering in isolation and separation from their creator. Even as they pursue harmless little hobbies and fads and ideologies, even silly things, people are wandering away from their creator if they don't know him in Christ. And I think we should feel the burden and the weight of that as we interact with people who do not know the gospel, who do not know God the way that we know him. Do we love others enough then to, to, to go to them with the hope of Christ, with the hope of the resurrection, with the hope of who Jesus is? And maybe finally, for some of you, you need to assess whether you are sure of this gospel yourself or whether, like the Areopagus philosophers, you're just chasing after the next fad too. Because in the end, it, it will lead you astray. You should, you should know the Lord. And the good news is that you actually can because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done to atone for our sins and to reconcile us to our Father. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, how often do we think of the gospel, think of your word, think of sharing the truth of who you are with others and step back, cautious, even worried that what we will say will seem foolish. When in fact to this world it is foolish, and yet we can go before others with a deep confidence that what you have spoken is true and that who you are will never change. Lord, would you quicken our hearts? Would you give, would you give us boldness and courage? And more than anything, a faith that demonstrates itself, that shows itself an unyielding confidence in you, not in ourselves, not in our own wisdom, our own ability to, to convince others and argue a point, but, but in your wisdom, in your winsomeness, which has seen fit to draw near to us in the most unlikely of ways, through a baby born in, in the Middle East to a woman with no name for herself, you saw fit to usher in your kingdom. By, by sentencing your own son to die on the cross on behalf of sinners, 
you made a mockery of the wisdom of this world, which says that only the victorious are powerful. But in laying down his life, Jesus showed himself to be, and you have vindicated him as the final arbiter of justice in the universe and the one on whom all of our hopes hang. Lord, help us to worship you, therefore, in, in truth and in, in our spirit that we might draw near to you, that we might obey you, and that we might call others to do the same. Lord, this world is filled with fleeting ideas, with faddish philosophies. Help us to see and help us to show how the gospel transcends it all. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.